0: It is probably the most important single thing that could make a huge difference in this country if it were in the consciousness of voters and if they paid attention to it and if they voted it as an issue.
1: Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryants, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, let's continue talking about some terms related to politics and government. Uh, We've been interspersing our conversation with taking a couple of detours off on other topics as we post our podcasts, but uh, our main thread towards the end of 2017 and heading into 2018 is continuing to talk about these terms so i'd like to pick up on the term crusade interesting one what is a crusade and where does that start
0: it's interesting because it has such an ancient historical basis and uh, the crusades as such, at the time, had such a transient effect on history, and yet uh, the term is used a lot these days, and the memory of the Crusades also is important today. Uh, Originally, the term was used to label military expeditions by European Christians against the uh, Muslim governments of the, they regard as the Holy Land, the problem being that uh, Jerusalem was not only the sacred land of the Jews, but Christians considered it also the place where Christ died and therefore is sacred to them. And Muslims said that that was where uh, Muhammad ascended into heaven in a famous vision. Um, and so it's the second most or third most sacred spot in Islam as well, which has led to untold suffering as these three religions make a tug of war. But during the Middle Ages, um, Muslims have taken over. There were still a small number of Jews living in Jerusalem and uh Armenian Christians and various other groups. And the Muslim government was fairly tolerant. It said that, uh, you know, you weren't full citizen. Uh, but You had to pay an extra tax if you belonged to a different religion. And, of course, it would be better if you converted, but you weren't forced to convert. Um, people could travel and uh, visit if they wanted to go visit the Christian places or Jewish places or anything. Uh, it's not a problem. And it was altogether rather private until... Um, one of the popes got excited about it and realized that, oh, my goodness, the place where Christ died and was resurrected is in the hands of Muslims. And that all happened because, to go back to really ancient history, when the Roman Empire collapsed, uh, the West collapsed before the East. And we wound up with an Eastern Roman Empire that ruled a good part of uh, Uh, what is Eastern Europe and the Middle East for quite a while. And that was after Constantine's time ruled by Christians. So it shrank as the Muslim regions began to grow and the Muslims took over more and more of the Middle East. uh, Nothing much was left of the old Christian Eastern Empire except the city of Byzantium. And when uh, the emperor there felt uh, threatened by Muslims, he called on his brother, Pope, please come and help us fight the cause against these wicked Muslims. Well, the message got completely uh, screwed up because the Pope, instead of saying, oh, let's go save the Christians in Byzantium, thought, Oh, oh, you just reminded me. (laughs) Jerusalem's ruled over by Muslims. Let's go free Jerusalem and make that Christian again. Not at all what the original appeal was all about. So uh, it's a very long and complicated story with lots of ins and outs, and I won't go into all the details I used to teach this at some length but what happens is the christian troops arrive in byzantium saying okay we're ready to go and they wind up fighting fellow christians uh they make a mess of everything they are not at all interested in fighting the particular battles that they had been summoned to fight and so the emperor sends them on and say okay go your way <laughs> you are no use to me they wind up uh, going to jerusalem and um Again, very complicated story, but they do manage briefly to conquer Jerusalem and set up a Christian government there and um, decide to purify the city, what we call ethnic cleansing now, it was a religious cleansing, uh, herding the Jews into the synagogue and setting it on fire, killing them, men, women, and children, slaughtering uh, other non-Christians in the streets uh, to the extent that they described uh, their horses uh, wading in blood up to their fetlocks. Um, They also killed a lot of Christians that they didn't realize were Christians. People like the Syriacs uh, didn't speak the same language, didn't look the same. So they just pretty much killed anybody they came across and set up this kingdom, which uh, led to great rejoicing back in Western Europe in the church where they felt that, oh, a new age has transpired. This is wonderful. And it only took a generation for the Muslims to retake Jerusalem, but Western Europe kept launching crusades to try and undo what had been done. Uh, One of those crusades, led by Richard II, uh, succeeded in temporarily returning Jerusalem to Christian hands in a negotiated treaty. And then when the terms of the treaty expired, it went right back to being Muslim. And he was blamed a good deal for that. But it was a pretty smart move, actually, on his part. Uh, that One of the Crusades finally ended in pretty much destroying the Christian government in Byzantium and doing just exactly the opposite of what the original IAB had been in Byzantium, got conquered and became the capital of the Muslim Empire instead. Um, there were castles along the coast where orders of militant uh, armed Monks were hanging on for quite a while, uh, but they too eventually were conquered. And um, it pretty much in the East, this was forgotten. This was uh, an episode that affected only the people really right around in Jerusalem and a few other unfortunate villages that happened to be in the way of the crusaders. Um, but um, the Muslims won pretty definitively. And they went about their business. They had their interest in Egypt and in Syria and all kinds of other places. Uh, it didn't mean much to them. In the West, they never forgot it. And they started writing romances uh, that became very, very popular about adventures that happened during the Crusades. Uh, The story of Roland gets tied up with the Crusades, the Song of Roland, which originally, uh, originally would have had nothing to do with it. And that leads to ballets and operas and paintings and sculptures and all things to do with Crusades and Crusaders and Crusaders falling in love with pagan women and miracles being performed and all kinds of stuff so there's a huge body of cultural folklore that kept the notion of crusading alive in the west um, the biggest fiasco came when uh, the rulers of southern france had become influenced by the albigensian belief which was not Uh, Really, it's often called a heresy, but it was actually a different religion. Really interesting. And you had a huge war where the northern French invaded and carried out, with the permission of the Pope, a crusade against their fellow Frenchmen and slaughtered them for being uh, the wrong kind of Christian. So crusading uh, really has a pretty bad history for people who really dig into it. Nevertheless, the term has survived as a common noun in uh, American English and British English for something where people are engaged in a struggle to accomplish something that they believe in very strongly and willing, if not to take up arms, at least to uh, fight uh, metaphorically uh, for what they believe in. So you get all kinds of crusades. Back during the 60s, it was formed the Campus Crusade for Christ, which is still around and very active. Back in the 1950s, there was a Crusade for Freedom, which raised funds for Radio Free Europe, uh, which was a government propaganda arm. uh, Very successful, actually did a lot of good work, but much of it clandestinely funded and supported as a crusade for children. But people often use the term crusading loosely, uh, not meaning to offend anybody by it. But what's happened is that groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda have reawakened the consciousness of the crusade. And uh, they've begun to speak of the Europeans, the Americans as crusader states. And to say this is a centuries-long struggle that started way back in the Middle Ages and is still continuing today. These uh, ultra-radical Islamist groups... Love the image of crusading and view themselves as modern crusaders against the crusaders of the West. And when a Western politician or public figure of some kind uses the term crusade in speaking about wars in Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria or whoever, they just eat that up. I mean, that, that plays right into their playbook. So it's extremely stupid and counterproductive. Uh, to talk about crusading in those terms, and I just assume the whole term die comes of course uh from carrying the cross the the crooks the the cross is the thing in the crusade mm. uh You know, it appeals to people who think that you should attach a religious idea to your struggle. Uh, But in the world today, it's very counterproductive to talk about your efforts as a crusade.
1: That covers it pretty thoroughly. You do see it used outside of the context of war, fighting battles, and so on. It gets used in the vernacular. You pointed out the... New York Times headline, One Woman's Crusade for Her Late Husband's Sperm. Yeah, <laughs> that would be
0: a campaign. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Not a crusade.
1: <laughs> yeah, the word campaign and crusade get used interchangeably. Yeah. But uh, campaign would be a more neutral way of putting it, right? Right. Not so loaded. Let's talk about some other, things not such a nice term, demagogue. It sounds like something to do with democracy.
0: It does come from the same root as democracy. Yeah. And in Greece, it meant popular leader.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But the notion that somebody who is popular was also sometimes going to be a bad leader. um, You find that especially in the writings of Plato, uh, and he evidently drawing this from Socrates. We don't know what Socrates actually thought. All we know is what Plato told us Socrates thought. There's a few other reports, but... Um, this distrust of people who are just wildly popular is something that was very much a part of Greek thought, that is, of some strands of Greek thought. And so the idea of a demagogue came to have very negative connotations, and today it has exclusively negative connotations. Nobody would say, hey, I'm running for demagogue, or I hope I can be the next big demagogue. Uh, It's always something you use to denounce other people. It was still being used in both positive and negative ways uh, from the 17th century in English on. But even in the 19th century, the English occasionally were using it with positive connotations. Uh, But now from the 20th century on, it just means a political agitator uses mob passions and prejudices to get power, a rabble rouser, Uh, classic examples of demagoguer, Hitler, Joe McCarthy, and I would say Donald Trump. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: It's sometimes also used as a verb to demagogue. That's a little awkward, but it does get used.
1: Right, right. So entirely a negative connotation in that term. Uh, now, a demagogue might make a stump speech. This is an interesting phrase. Stump speech. Where does it come from? And I don't hear it a whole lot anymore, but. You
0: hear it in newspapers,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, or news broadcasters. Yeah, this is one of those terms that uh, the media uses from time to time, but you don't hear it on the street so much.
0: Well, the thing is that if you're a reporter having to follow some politician around and hear the same speech said over and over and over, you would welcome a term that makes it sound a little stupid. (laughs) Right. But uh, yeah, campaigning politicians used to stand sometimes on tree stumps to give public talks. You know, America was built by cutting down trees. Mm -hmm. We're trying to undo that here at the land trust where I volunteer. Um, So the phrase stump speech meant campaign speech. So the guy that got up in the stump and spoke and it's attested in American English as early as 1820. Now it means any standard speech that's given repeatedly in various places by a candidate, especially a candidate for the U.S. presidency. And that's about the only time you hear it. During presidential campaigns, um reporters will say, well, he in his stump speech before people in Iowa today, he said blah, blah, blah.
1: And the thing to keep in mind, for me anyway, is that stump speech almost suggests to me it's going to be a short speech. It doesn't have to be a short speech. No. It's just out of the can. Standard speech that's done on the campaign trail.
0: But also to travel, giving such speeches during a campaign is to stump. To be on the stump. Yeah. Yeah. And you stump for someone if you campaign for someone by traveling around giving stump speeches.
1: Right. But it's related to tree stumps still. Yeah. Not so much the kind of stomping kind of stump. Yeah. Right. Well, let's talk about another one that's got a lot to it, uh, the term barn burner. That's another kind of antiquated term, but uh, it's got an interesting history and it's worth talking about as it relates to politics.
0: It's another one of these that journalists keep alive. <laughs> yeah. nobody talks about barn burners except journalists.
1: You know, one of these days we should do an episode on these terms that you see in journalism, but you don't see them anywhere else.
0: Right. Well, so the Merriam-Webster's website has a nice little piece on this, and I thought I'd just read that. The barn burners were one of two competing factions in the New York State Democratic Party in the middle of the 19th century. The name was in allusion to the story of an old Dutchman who relieved himself of rats by burning his barns, which they infested. Sounds like one of those xenophobic jokes about how stupid immigrants are. Mm. In the modern parlance, a barn burner is defined as a very exciting game, event, etc. The earliest citation in our files for this use is from 1934. A real barn burner was the following hand, which provided plenty of excitement at the evening session. Now, it should be noted that the barn burner here is a game of bridge, which perhaps gives fodder to those of us that think that the 1930s were a simpler time and that our ancestors found certain things more exciting than we do today. What was it a couple of years ago? The New York Times finally decided to abandon its bridge column.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Today, barn burner is often used to describe a sporting event or some other contest, such as a political race, which occasions a good deal of excitement. But before this 20th century use, barn burner had a very specific meaning in U.S. politics. Uh, The barn burners, as the Webster notes, were one of two competing factions in the New York State Democratic Party. And John Russell Bartlett, in his 1848 Dictionary of Americanisms, provided a lengthy quote from the New York Tribune, which explained that the name was an allusion to the story of the old Dutchman who relieved himself of rats by burning his barns when they infested. Okay, that's where that comes from. In this case, the barn burners were so determined to get rid of systemic abuses that they were willing to destroy the system itself. That's how they got the name barn burners. The barn burners were the more radical of the two political groups. The more conservative party was referred to as the hunkers, possibly on the grounds that they were interested in a hunk of political spoils or because they hankered after political elective office. I would think maybe because they just wanted to hunker down. but.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The governor's favorites for speaker, printers, bank directors, all have been floored by the quote barn burner says the radicals are eclept in our state. New York Tribune, twentieth, january, eighteen forty two. Eclept that's a um Chaucer era word for called or named. It has long been thought that the New York barn burners were the originators of that term, aside from the occasional person who literally burned out a barn. But recent findings have indicated that the term began its life describing radicals in a neighboring state, Pennsylvania, slightly earlier. We do not know to what particular class the new epithet of barn burners is intended to be applied, but it strikes us as highly characteristic of those who trample upon the rights of citizens and the laws of the land. Public Ledger, Philadelphia, 17th of April, 1840. It matters little where exactly the word began being used. What is germane is that we have a word which began its life as a term for a radical faction of politicians and then segued to being a descriptor of some exciting event. Barn burner is the perfect word for this or any political season. That's the Webster conclusion. What this doesn't say is that the phrase is frequently used by journalists to label a rousing political speech rather than a standard stump speech. Yeah. A, a real barn burner would be a really exciting speech that gets everybody riled up.
1: And we already talked about another term out of journalism the stem winder.
0: Yes. Right. Same thing. Same thing. Here's three examples from headlines last year. Bernie Sanders gave a barn burner speech to kick off his 2016 campaign. Donna Brazil brings DNC to its feet with barn burner speech. We're never going back. President Trump's Warsaw speech set to be a barn burner, amazing and historic.
1: So now it's just related to a speech that's uh, particularly fiery and exciting. Right. And the origin is... We don't think about it in those terms anymore, this idea of burning down the house and starting fresh. I'm to have some other terms to talk about that are also not that pleasant. How about the term gerrymander? You
0: know, I was just thinking before we get into that. What if uh, Trump had proposed using the water that he drained from the swamp to put out the fire in the barn? <laughs> He didn't actually drain the swamp, though, so that's just a theoretical question.
1: Yeah, right, right, right. It's funny, but you bring up an interesting point. When we think of somebody going in to tear everything down, the metaphor is draining the swamp, not burning the barn. Right. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about gerrymander, because that also has an interesting history, all right. Well, it's a subject that gets
0: um, deep in the weeds, as they say, very quickly, and that most people really would rather not to explore it in any depth. But it is probably the most important single thing that could make a huge difference in this country if it were in the consciousness of voters and if they paid attention to it and if they voted it as an issue. So it's worth talking about. To gerrymander is to design electoral districts to advantage one party over another by contorting the boundaries. So, for instance, uh, one way it's often done in the American South has been take all the different areas in a city which have majority black inhabitants and put them all in one district and then have the white areas of the city divided up into other districts that annex part of the countryside around them to give them more population. So you wind up on the city council or the state legislature with the the blacks having one delegate they can send and the whites having a lot more, uh, even if the uh, blacks in the city are 40 or 45 percent of the population. So it's a way of distorting the vote by drawing lines for electoral districts. There's some dispute over who at first invented this term. Uh, most often it's cited as used in the Boston Gazette in 1812 after Massachusetts Governor Elbridge Gary's redistricting plan was presented, resulting in a salamander-like shape for one district. Um, and the newspaper called it a gerrymander. It's looking like a salamander. Now, from ancient times, the word uh, salamander was used to designate a mythical creature that could live in fire perhaps because salamanders were seen to crawl out of newly ignited piles of logs where they'd lain hidden. It was also used for a red hot iron implement used for lighting a pipe or igniting gunpowder. It was also called a salamander. But back to gerrymanders. Every 10 years, the constitution gives state governments the task of redrawing their electoral districts and the party in power generally tries to do so to enhance the chances of candidates from their party. The result is often that the party with a minority of voters in a state will elect a majority of representatives. This is distinctly undemocratic. So you have lots of cases where the majority of the people wanted to vote in one direction, but because of the districts, the candidates for the other party take office. And the proportion of Representatives in the House of Representatives who are Republicans, for instance, versus the number of Republicans versus Democratic voters in the country is uh, just way, way out of whack. And most of that comes from redistricting. Now, both parties have done this. Uh, it's done at the state level. And so this is where most people ignore state politics, don't vote in state elections, pay little attention to it. That's a huge mistake because this is where everything right up to the appointments in the Supreme Court has its roots. If you have a state government that's controlled by a minority party that is not the one that you and your fellows believe in, then you're in very great danger of being gerrymandered out of your political rights all the way up to the federal level. Because the next time that census comes around and the redistricting takes place, you essentially can get robbed of your vote. The Supreme Court has been very reluctant to rule against gerrymandering for purely political purposes. It has ruled against them when they're executed as a means of racial discrimination. And there's been some cases brought in recent years. But recently, the Republicans have been the main beneficiaries of gerrymandering. But in the past, several prominent Republican politicians asked the Supreme Court to end gerrymandering, uh, and they were ruling on the Wisconsin case of Gill versus Whitford, which uh, was argued this fall before the Supreme Court, and will not be decided until probably June, and we'll get to hear what they had to say. This has potentially huge consequences, because it's pretty clear that the right for one citizen, one vote is being violated in the current system by the use of gerrymandering. And will the Supreme Court decide that this really has to go? That would have enormous consequences or not. Now, since uh, most redistricting is done by professional politicians, uh, people often say that the practice allows politicians to select their voters rather than allowing the voters to select their politicians. And I think that is literally the case. Now, there is one other way besides getting a Supreme Court decision to eliminate gerrymandering, and that is for the states to appoint nonpartisan redistricting commissions. That has been done in 21 different states now. Uh, Unfortunately, some of them are quite small states. But if we could get a majority of the states that have the majority of the population in the country. And what they would do is pass a law that says redistricting will be done by a non-political mean. Sometimes it's a panel made up equally of Democrats and Republicans, and they have to agree. They may need to follow certain mathematical procedures and avoid certain kinds of distortions and so on. There are all kinds of different rules. Um, Arizona and California have had uh, nonpartisan commissions, five other states, prevent one party from having an advantage over the other they are hawaii idaho montana new jersey and washington state Um, another way to deal with it is for the states to declare that their state will give all of its electoral votes to whoever wins the national popular vote and this has been done by a few states new york most recently and that solves the problem as far as the presidential election is concerned. It's not clear that it'll ever become popular enough to be taken in by a number of states. Uh, but that would also help. But that just solves the Electoral College problem. It doesn't solve the problem of gerrymandering. Almost half the states, mostly strongly Republican-dominated, have no initiative or referendum process that would allow the voters to, to strongly influence the move toward a more democratic means of representation. So you have to elect a legislature and a governor, which are sympathetic to the idea of doing away with gerrymandering and then hold them to it. And that's a big challenge. It's very, very difficult. But that is the solution to a lot of our political problems in this country, if it could ever happen.
1: Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head early on in this discussion that it's something that people are not focused on enough or aware of enough. And we talked in previous episodes of some other terms that lead people to be thinking about really important topics that are foundational to a democratic society. And this is just right up there, one of them that would level the playing field a little bit if districts were drawn up to have better cross-representation, it really is a matter of the districts doing the voting rather than the people Right, in some cases. So if we can get an overload of the number of districts in one party's favor, it doesn't really matter that you hand over a few of the districts to the other party.
0: Right. And for instance, in one of these typical southern cities, the white candidates for most of the districts in the city could completely ignore the needs and wishes of the black residents, the black citizens of the city. And in fact, vote for things that are very much against their interests. Um, and the blacks can vote for their own representative, but he's hopelessly outnumbered. And so they can't have their proportionate influence that they ought to have, according to the population.
1: Well, Paul, we've done it again. We've made it through some more of these terms, and I think we can wrap it up on talking about politics and government in our next discussion. But there's enough left to talk about that uh, we'll have to save that for another time.
0: Have you uh, heard that there's a big march for impeachment planned coming up?
1: Well, yeah, I think we better hold off on that discussion until we step up to the microphone next time. Okay. Thank you, Paul. So long, Tom. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.